out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so I'm going to uh, be talking about some of the letters that Lovecraft uh, wrote to some of his friends, specifically letters written between March and July uh, 1932. Um, so as always, as I've been doing in the series, at least for the last, uh, uh, you know, couple sections of this podcast where I've been looking at his selected letters, I've been taking them like 20 at a time. Um, and I'm continuing to do that here. And I'm also looking at them in the order, not chronological order specifically, but but instead I group them based on who he's writing to. So this will allow us to explore themes, uh, you know, as they develop within a conversation with a certain writer. It, it makes it a little bit easier to, to deal with. Um, now, what's in these letters? Well, in this broad set, I mean, one one thing to mention is the the death of his aunt. The death of his aunt happen, happens in July 1932, and he writes about this to several of uh, his correspondents. It's a major theme of the, his letters from from July 1932. Uh, of course, his aunt had a really big role in his life. We've actually looked at some of the letters that Lovecraft wrote to to Mrs. Clark in. Um, previous episodes way back when I looked at the second volume when he was really pretty much when he was in New York he wrote quite a few letters to her and we looked at quite a few of those um, certainly she had a big impact on his life and, and did a lot for um, you know being his companion for much of his his life and his time in Providence so that that death was not insignificant um, I think another issue here in these letters is there's a lot about war it's and this is going to be a theme we see a lot in his letters from this point forward really where um wars in the you know not if not actively happening in some place as in like east asia war basically starts in 1931 with the venturian crisis and was kept on for a few years in a more subtle way and then broke out again in 1937 um, but you have war in East Asia, you have the growing growth of fascism in Europe, and that's going to be a theme too. I don't know so much in these letters, but certainly in this volume, we see him talking about fascism quite a bit. Uh, his own, uh, you know, ideas about what the fascist system meant to him and, and what he thought its place could be in a modern mechanized, mechanized culture. Um, so we have that. Um, now, three of the letters in today's episode... Arthur Robert E. Howard, and I know I'm repeating myself here if you've been listening from the beginning, but um, I'm, I will say a little bit about these letters just to give you an idea what's in them, but I'm going to hold off my major thoughts about the Robert E. Howard letters till I look at the Means for Freedom volume, which will be the, how I end this series on H.P. Lovecraft in, in a few months, maybe four months or so. Uh, after I finish the rest of his stories, his revisions... Um, then I'm going to jump into those letters because I think they're a nice way to maybe explore a lot of the themes we've been talking about in this podcast from the beginning. Um, and that, So I'm not going to say a lot about those letters. I'm just going to mention what's in them. 
So, uh, yeah, without any further ado, let's uh, jump into this. Um, so the first two letters I want to look at were written to Vernon Shea. Vernon Shea was a, a weird fiction writer, much younger than Lovecraft. He started writing um, Shea... Uh, well, we, he, I think he first appears at the end of the third volume of the Selected Letters. So that'd be like 1931 or so. We start to see letters uh, to, to Vernon Shea. And, and a lot of the early letters were kind of uh, letters expressing Lovecraft's interest in his work and encouraging him to do work, to, to continue writing. It's, not, it's kind of the common stuff he writes to younger weird fiction writers that reached out to him. Uh, they're not nearly as interesting as, as the Howard letters, of course, because that was like two great minds really uh, engaged in a prolonged philosophical conversation that went on for, for years. It's, they're really an amazing example of American letters. Um, but they're still, but the, this, 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 this uh, kind of the generosity of Lovecraft towards younger writers is something I've noticed quite a lot reading these. Um, now, both of these letters deal with war, and they were written not that far apart from each other, basically one week. So I don't know how long it... Sometimes, you know, like, I get the sense Lovecraft would get a letter, he'd respond to it and send it out, and then maybe, you know, get a postcard or get another letter maybe a day later, and then he'd write again. Sometimes there's a longer gap between letters, and then this is an edited book, so we don't always know all the letters at least I don't, uh, all the letters that maybe weren't being included at all and what's in them. Um, you know, I know editors have been collecting a lot of these letters to single correspondence and, and publishing them like the Robert E. Howard collection. But with Vernon Shea, I don't really, you know, know. The, we don't, the, my point here is we don't get the other side of the conversation. So we don't know what's inspiring these comments. But these two letters, one dated March 22 and the other dated March 31, both 1932, both talk about war. And we see in these letters Lovecraft being very realistic about war. Um, he thinks it's horrible. It may destroy civilization. But he also thinks war is not controllable. It's like a force of nature. And it sort of exists in the universe in a way that cannot be stopped. Um, and, and he thinks, where does this come from? Well, it comes from civilization. And now he's an advocate of civilization. He believes civilization is essential to one's cultural bearings it's really our, our foundation for all identity and, and meaning in, the, in a very indifferent universe. Um, but it's also the cause, as he talks about in this letter, of war. You know, groups, civilization and groups, are, and specifically groups, cause war. And war is the consequence of grouping and groups. Um, and only, he says, force can stop aggression. So he's... You know, I don't, I don't know if I'd say he's an interventionist, but he does believe that, you know, he's not a, he's not a pacifist. He's making an argument against pacifism. And as far as I can tell, it seems that Vernon Shea was making pacifistic arguments towards Lovecraft. And Lovecraft, like this, uh, this, night, this older uh, mentor, tries, wants to correct him and say, this, cannot, this is not going to work. Pacifism is going to work. If you've got a progression, the only way to stop that is with force. Um, he does say there are things not worth fighting for, and one of those is trade. And I think he mentions specifically the case of Japan here uh, of being something not worth fighting a war over. Uh, war should be fought really tied to the rise and fall of civilizations, I think. Um, the, 30, the, the March 31st letter 
which like I, like I said, it's just like a week later he wrote, writes this this letter. Um, he just continues these themes. So I don't know if a, if, a, if a Shea letter came to Lovecraft in between these two. It's a pretty fast turnabout for that to have happened. But, um, you know, he, go, he comes back to these war issues. And he, and he talks about the failure of idealism, particularly like pacifism. And he mentions like the desolation of Greek civilization um, and the destruction that took place in Greek, civiliz Greek, Greek civilization. And he blames it on people not, the Greeks not really standing together. Of course, if you study ancient history, you know, the Persian Wars, when they did stand together a little bit more, they, they were successful. Um, but he, he kind of talks a little bit here about the necessities of, of civilization for one's identity. He even says nations get, give citizens their, their, their identity, which kind of feeds into his overall argument about civilization. Um, he even suggests here universal training for citizenship, which I, I think is not a horribly bad idea. I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm saying we're not going to go to the Robert E. Heinlein Starship Troopers mode necessarily, but some kind of education in how to be a citizen, uh, how to be engaged uh, is not a bad thing, I think. Uh, maybe I wouldn't have said that a few years ago, but have, living in this very depoliticized culture of China, um, I can kind of appreciate uh, training people to be politically active. And if that means military service, you know, I don't know if I'm offended by that as I used to be. I'm kind of, I'm kind of changing. I, I don't know if Lovecraft's wearing off on me, but but that's that. He does say something really funny here, though, to Shay. He says, you'll undoubtedly outgrow your present attitude, for it's really inconsistent with real, really realistic reason. <laughs> he, he just It's kind of condescending, that's why. But I kind of laughed out loud when I read that. All right. So that's the two letters in this section to Vernon Shea. Now, now I want to talk about two to Maurice Moe. One dated March 26th and the other July 12th. Um, and for this one, let's just let's just jump in and, and quote this letter a little bit. Um, now, Maurice Moe was an old friend of Lovecraft's, one of his earliest correspondents. Um, he shows up even in the first volume of the selected letters, for instance. Um, anyways, here we go. Quote, many an aesthetic dreamer is not a true introvert, but rather, as Aldous Huxley points out in Proper Studies, a sensationalist extrovert who derives his emotional satisfaction from the visible world, viewed purely as an impersonal decorative spectacle instead of from an inner world of his own subjective synthesizing. Wilde, Flaubert, Gautier, and many others were sensationalist extroverts, and I'm inclined to think I am. End quote. So this is really important because he's identifying himself in this group. He's not just defining this group of sensationalist extroverts, meaning, um, as he says here, you get your you're extroverted in that you're drawing your your aesthetic pleasures from the world around you, not purely from internal imagining, right? And a true introvert wouldn't need that kind of outside energy that that front, you know. The way we sometimes people talk about introversion is like, do you get energy from what's outside of you, or does it wear you down? Right. Um, that's sometimes how it's talked about. And and Lovecraft saying he's actually getting his energy from outside, but it's it's not like the typical kind of intro, intro, uh, extroversion we think about. It's uh, it's sensations he's after, imaginations. It's it's really kind of an interesting little idea here he plays with, um, and kind of he builds on this self-definition by talking about his dreams and talking about the fact that he dreams a lot. Um, 
anyways, I think it's a really, really interesting kind of philosophical approach to this introversion and extroversion idea. It's not so simple as just, do you like to go to parties? It's, it's actually um, deeper than that. Um, after this, he talks a little bit about poetry and phonetic harmony, things that I'm not particularly too interested in. Um, but one thing that kind of feeds into something that was happening, a little drama we saw in the last set of letters where we saw Lovecraft really, really frustrated over the, over the status of the weird fiction market and his inability to get into it anymore or his feeling that he really was an alien to that, to that culture that, that nurtured his career. Um, but anyways, here he talks a little bit about, he kind of throws some shade on August Derleth as he often does, uh, not to Derleth directly, but few, um, but to some of his friends. Um, but he writes this, I myself clearly recognize the limits beyond which I cannot successfully go, and I have no thought of doing anything serious except in the domain of fantasy, end quote. But he, but th he does get to a little bit to artistic appreciation throughout here too and, and, how, and how we can judge the value of art. Um, the other Maurice Moe um, letter dated July 12th, I'm not going to say too much about simply because it, it's just about the death of his aunt, um, who he addresses, he calls Miss Clark, um, with, with his typical politeness. Um, so there's not too much to say. Well, there's other letters where he says a little bit more about, about her. All right. Now we got a whole bunch of letters, five of them. So what? 25% of the 20 letters I'm going to look at today are to August Derleth. Um, so he writes a lot of letters to August Derleth, even though it's, it's you know, these aren't the mo always the most interesting letters. They're often kind of technical and business-oriented and things like that, about careers, about writing, or commenting on Derleth's works. But it doesn't mean we're not going to find some interesting things in these from time to time. Uh, so the first of these is, is March 31st. 1932, which is the same day he wrote that uh, a much more interesting letter to Vernon Shea on war and civilization. Here he just talks about revisiting uh, old stories, uh, going back to old ideas, and mostly about satisfying editors. This is actually building off of thoughts he was having previously uh, when he was dealing with, uh, when he was expressing to some of his colleagues his frustration over the weird fiction market. Um, and he basically says at this point, like, he would like to publish a book of his writings, but he's not able to really form a full book uh, of his works. Now, seeing as probably many of the people listening to this have uh, a Lovecraft anthology of some sort, there's been many, many versions of these uh, published. And now that his works are on the public domain, they've been put together quite a lot. You can find them pretty much at any bookstore. But he's saying he's unable to find out. Uh, a book full of his ideas. Obviously, he was wrong about that, but it's just another window into his frustrations over his his career at the time. Uh, so the next one we jump to um, August, April thirtieth. Sorry, April thirtieth. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's it's kind of repetitive. I, I feel sometimes we're repeating ourselves looking at these letters. Uh, I, I still think their value is in them, but. Um, I get the sense the editors of these letters had certain ideas that they wanted to say about Lovecraft, and they found the letters that really fit that. So those themes constantly come back. And here's one good example of this. Uh, once again, we're getting Lovecraft praising Poe, Dunsany, and Blackwood. Uh, you know, whenever he's praising some author from previous generations, it's like these three people keep coming up, and he'll, he'll talk about his inability to match their, their brilliance. 
It's um, yeah, it's it's a little bit repetitive, but whatever. That's all I'm gonna say about that one. Uh, so next we have June sixth. Uh, so this is a little bit more interesting. This this is uh, another travel uh, letter. This is uh, we get to see Lovecraft once again traveling, and it's, it's always fun to watch him travel because he's so much in love with different cultures across North America, which is everywhere he traveled. I mean, he didn't travel outside North America. He went to Canada, mostly the eastern part of the United States. Uh, but this was the trip to the south. Now, this letter is dated June sixth, as I said, um, and he. He's talking about his trip in the South. He goes to New Orleans. He talks, uh, you know, he talks about visiting some Southern plantations and compares that to compares that to the Northeast. And you know, in Lovecraft's mind, he often thinks about architecture and spatial design in terms of civilizations. That's a common trope of his. And of course, he's quite. It's, it's a little bit problematic that he's talking about a plantation as representative of Southern culture and civilization. Of course, that being the domain of the ruling class. I mean, there might be some kind of crude Marxist interpretations where you say that's the right way to do it, right? They were the dominant class. They dominate the economy. So actually, this is the best way to understand that culture, even if you acknowledge it as oppressive. But uh, you don't get the too much of a sense that Lovecraft particularly interested in uh, in the fate of, of black people. Um, now, we do know he helped write this Medusa's Coil, which deals with Southern plantation culture around this time. I think it, it must have been written before this trip. But anyways, this is a really nice letter, I think. There's a lot of cool stuff in it about New Orleans, um, about the other places he visits, and he, he's, he's saying that this is like favorably comparable to places like Marblehead and Salem and, and Newburyport. Um, but he talks about this kind of decline, de decaying architecture of the plantations. Uh, that's another kind of interesting aspect I found here. He writes, on the way to New Orleans, I noted many old plantation houses in various stages of desert, desertion and decay, plus two, Ormond de Estraban, which had been gratefully restored. There are two distinct types of plantation houses, the earlier Creole sort, with raised basement, lower, lower portico, steep slant roof, and small dormers and the later American type with the vast columns and general classical revival architecture. Both of these types exist as far north as Natsez. Um, so really uh, just another example of his, of his travel writing. That's an anthology that, that could be useful, put together his travel letters. And, and I think people would really dig it if they dig architecture and, and you know, and want to think about Lovecraft's views of, of other parts of you know, the, the, the non-parochial Lovecraft. Lovecraft gets deemed as parochial by too many casual readers, but he's not at all. I mean, he's so uh, worldly in his fiction and in his, um, and we've seen his letters. Um, maybe he's still limited in that he kind of stuck to the eastern part of, the, of North America, but, you know, he wasn't made of money either. Um, anyways, let me look something up. Yeah, I just went to look something up. Medusa's Coil was written in 1930, so actually two years before this um, trip. But the fact that that's set in a decaying, deserted plantation house uh, in this part of the, the country, um, I think it's significant because um, he's talking about it here in this letter. Anyways. 
So a week later, we get a letter to on June 12th. Um, he's still in New Orleans when he writes this, and he talks mostly about the distinctive and unique New Orleans environment and its architecture. So there's a lot here about architecture as well. So I'm not going to repeat it, but he gets into a lot of details about the different types of patios, the different types of uh, buildings he sees. Um, and he calls them at one point delightful hidden paradises. So my point is you really get the sense he really dug uh, the, this, this southern trip in an aesthetic sense. Uh, we don't get too much of him commenting on southern culture. Um, he doesn't seem to worry about that too much. And it's something we'd like to see him talk about more. He, I know he does get into this with Robert e. Howard a little bit about southern culture but we don't really see it in this letter precisely. And then finally we have a, a February, no, sorry, July. Sorry, I can't read my own handwriting. A July 16th, 1932 letter uh, to Durleth, which is about um, the death of his aunt. Now I mentioned before with the, with the Maurice Moe letter that that one wasn't that interesting, but this one definitely is. Uh, a little more interesting because he gets into a little bit of his philosophy on death uh, with his with his friend, which is of course is something people think about when a loved one dies, right? Quote: Many talk of the joy and freedom of being without possessions, but I am not enough of a throw to share that point of view. With me, contentment consists in having around me as many as possible of the things I've always been used to: furniture, pictures, and the like. I'm not making any radical alteration in the arrangement of my room since I do not wish to be violently reminded of the loss that has occurred. I am now the custodian of all the old family papers and relics, wills, records, military and civil commissions, derogatypes, miniatures, and the like, many of which so mixed with their former arrangement I have never seen before. It will be my endeavor to keep them in better order." Quote. So in, in some sense, it's a little perverse, right? It's most extreme you end up with like the psycho uh, story, right? Or you actually just, you can't, come to terms with the loss so you you you, you, you literally like are in denial about it but that, i mean obviously that's not lovecraft's problem here uh but lovecraft is saying he can't he's not the kind of person who's going to like clean out his aunt's stuff and make room for a new uh, a new study in, in her room and you get the sense it's coming from a not just a respect for her but uh a deep wish to honor her right and remember her and and not have her her presence on this planet just kind of wash away it, it's it kind of is touching i think and i think maybe um you know people of my generation with boomer parents and and they got the you know i don't know if this is common i think it fairly is it was it was a not to call a whole generation hoarders but they were more likely to have unnecessary stuff than maybe my generation or certainly millennials or, or, or younger generations. And it's, you know, and as boomers go in, in, in coming years, you know, this is, what's this going to, you know, there's dump all this stuff. What are you going to do with all this stuff? And, you know, Lovecraft's making a case here for, for honoring that in a way. Right. Quote, it will be my endeavor to keep them in better order. Um, but there's also a psychological element to Lovecraft saying like, he can't he, he can't imagine a, a, not having these things to, to, to get rid of this would to be to lose part of of his life. 
it, it's kind of touching and it's worth checking out i think all right next three letters to james ferdinand morton this is one of his uh the, one of the people he corresponded with quite a lot we've been talking a lot about the letters to james ferdinand morton uh, these are all usually, you can expect when you see one of these letters, a good letter dealing with politics, dealing with other cultures, big issues, philosophy. Uh, if you just, I actually think if you just read the Morton letters, uh, you, you don't have to read a lot of the others because almost everything important he has to say, he says in one way or another to Morton. I'm becoming more and more convinced of this. But um, it's also a good reminder of why it's it's great to have a good friend who... Even if you don't agree with many things, you can, you know, feed off each other. Um, anyways, the first one we have is just dated April 1932. He sometimes does that. He doesn't always give the formal date. I think he does it to Morton more than some of the others, though. Um, but here he talks about the steadiness of Asian culture. That's a, it's kind of another thing we've seen him say a lot, uh, especially with this kind of rise of Japan and, and this what's going to the future of China going to be and can Japan conquer China? These concerns. He, he basically is doubtful that Chinese civilization could be overthrown because he sees it as so steady and, and kind of permanent. It's like, it's like a force of nature in itself um, and really can't be disrupted too much. Um, you know, I don't know if he would agree today. I mean, there, there are people who still talk about, kind of have that kind of Orientalist idea of the eternal Asia, eternal China. You know, China's kind of unchanging. Like, its political culture is still rooted in Confucianism, they might say. Or, you know, and even the Chinese will do this. Well, they'll talk about, oh, our culture goes back 5,000 years. It's, it's kind of ignoring the changes that go on within those 5,000 years and the revolutions and the upheavals. But then you get this other vision of China where everything is new, right? Old neighborhoods are being destroyed. I, I recently moved to a new apartment. And, you know, I got a historic building next door. It was built in 1930. You know, you don't find it. It's like the only one I've really seen here. There's a few other areas. There's like the, some old Grand Canal stuff in Hangzhou. But there's not much in the way of old buildings. It's all been destroyed and leveled and to make way for this new China. So... I don't know if you look, I, I mean, I'm more on this idea that Chinese culture is rapidly changing um, and it's not, you, can, you can't learn as much as you might think studying ancient Chinese philosophy to understand contemporary China. Not that it's not interesting and valuable to study in its own right. All right. With that aside away, let me try to get my thoughts back in order here. Uh What else do you say here? Uh, oh, he, he, there's a lot of interesting race stuff uh, in this letter. He, for instance, at one point says, the Nordic people should have stayed in Asia. Now he's taken this old, old idea of the, of kind of the Aryans as a, you know, as the people who migrated into, into India, right? Being of the same culture of, of, of Western, Western Europe. Um, but here's what he says. I, I'll just read this because it's so weird. Um, and to wish that the virile Nordic had never left his homeland in the West Hindu Kush to merge his fortunes with the restless, fevered, machine-driven European chasers after mutable nothingness. And I, I'm not even sure who he's talking about here. Who are the machine-driven European chasers after mutable nothingness? When he's talking about the Nordic migrants from the Hindu Kush, he, the Greeks, the, the Greeks were Aryans, right? Or they not Aryans, they were um, the Indo-Europeans. 
Because I think that's who... Isn't that who we're talking about here? I, I mean, I have to... I need an anthropologist, a historian of anthropology to say what was the views of migrations uh, specifically at that time. But here's what he says more. He says, Had we stuck to Asia, we might have founded a permanent world empire of unrivaled splendor and irresistible strength, as mighty and as puissant as Rome, and as stable and enduring as antique Egypt or deathless Sinai. We might have killed off all the slant-eyed yellow folk and had had long camel trains of slaves and gold and ivory and strange crystals sent to us by tribute by the dark-eyed vassals and cringers of, of Ind, of Persia, of Africa, of Europe. And, the, you know, and he goes on about this. It's like a weird fantasy. It's, it's perverse. Um, but the core idea here is that had we stayed in Asia, you know, we could have this kind of permanent, stable, dominant civilization like like a permanent world empire like like china which is such a weird thought i mean it's it's like a geographical argument not even a racial one at this point he's so you know sometimes his ideas just do this they're, they're, it's i mean he's a wild guy <laughs> um so anyways that's all i'm going to say about it it's, read it yourself and, and if you if you can make heads or tails of exactly what he's trying to say here let me know um next uh james uh again to james morton same month april 1932 this is just a weird letter it's, it's i don't even know what to make of it it's it's about a guy named henry borps who was working at a hospital in bellevue and he's just kind of passing out some information um but he does say this one interesting thing though gord knows i'm no friend of ennui but i want to kick I want my kick to come from something other than the gruesomeness of physical and psychological abnormalities, pathology, and decay, end quote. He's basically saying, I would never want to work in a hospital. It's too creepy. It's too grotesque. I, I like to be freaked out a little bit, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dream of Cthulhu and, and elder things. I don't, I don't want to see old people die. Uh, at least that's how I'm reading it. All right. Then jumping ahead, we got a July 5th letter. I think. Now I can't find it. Here it is. I, I wrote this at a bar, these notes. You can tell from my handwriting uh, and the more uh, terse state of these notes. Uh, okay, July 5th. So this is uh, his, aunt, his aunt dying. Uh, not quite dead yet. Uh, no, he says she, no, she says she was dying and now she's dead. Um, so he's kind of telling the whole process. So this is right after she died, I believe. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a traumatic thing for people when someone you've been with your whole life and, and relied on and, and spent a lot of time with dies. But he goes into details of her illnesses, uh, her illness, um, her coma, and the fact that she, when she went, she probably didn't recognize H.P. Uh, Lovecraft anymore. Then a little bit about the, the, the minister who's going to come and do the services and all that stuff. Um, but here he gives some thoughts on it, the shock of this death on him. Quote, the suddenness of the event is both bewildering and merciful, the latter because we cannot yet realize subjectively that it has actually occurred at all. It would, for example, seem incredibly unnatural to disturb her pillows now arranged for my aunt in her rocker beside my center table, her accustomed reading place each evening. Unquote. And this feeds into what he was saying to her left, too, how, you know, it's, it's, it seems in his mind almost disrespectful or a, a an assault on memory itself and, and, and history and, and her and a respect for her, her, 
the importance of her life to disrupt what she was in that house. She, she's a ghost, right? It, it's, that, that may be one thing. Lovecraft is imagining her as a ghost who's going to expect her stuff to be there. Um, and Lovecraft can't imagine living in a place without those things and without this person. Um, it's, kind of t- it's kind of touching. You, you really see how much having her in his life uh, meant to him. And, you know, the fact that he wrote her, her very long letters from New York, I think, uh, builds off that. All right. Um, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, there's a, uh, two letters to Clark Ashton Smith, April 4th and July 26th. Um, the April 4th one is about his revision, revision of a Whitehead story. Um, and I want to read this directly because I had some questions. It's a very short letter. But he says, I'm now helping Whitehead prepare a new ending and background for a story Bates had rejected. The original told of a young man who bumped his head and therefore heard sounds as if of a mighty cataclysm, although the city around him was quiescent. It was supposed to be due to the result of the bruise, which made the fellow's head a natural radio and enabled him to hear the Japanese earthquake. So there's a story I skipped when I was doing the revisions. And maybe I have to go back now and, and do it, which wouldn't be hard because... I mean, it's kind of, it's actually, it's literally the next story uh, after the trap. But, so I have this anthology of his revisions, uh, which are, these are all public domain stuff. So um, I got it online. It's H.P. Lovecraft, The Complete Fiction Omnibus, and there's different volumes of it. This one is called Collaborations in Ghostwriting. And it, some things aren't included here, like the Eddie revisions. Um, but Bothan is here, and this is Whitehead by N.H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, and here's what the editors of that, this collection say. Um, wow. Basically, this is a story presented here. This is what they write. Therefore, the story is presented here, but with the caveat that not every Lovecraft scholar, and certainly not the one whose words you're reading right now, believes it's really his work. Um, so this is saying this is like a Whitehead story, pretty much exclusively that Lovecraft wasn't involved. All right. Um, I'm fine with that. But I, when I read this, he says I'm helping Whitehead. And he, you know, maybe he didn't help much. Maybe that's the point that the editors of that anthology are saying. Maybe he like fixed a few typos. He made a few comments, but he didn't really do much in the writing way. So it's not, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to read both of them. Though. I don't even know what the plot is, if the plot matches here. Hearing a Japanese earthquake seems interesting. So I think when I go back to the revisions, I'm going to take the time to work on that story. Just because of this, this line here. Uh, anyways, a little more complaining about editors, too, in this letter. All right, next uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, July 26th. Um, it's about cosmic horror and weird fiction. And he basically is giving some advice to uh, Smith about what weird fiction should be. He says, weird fiction should be a hypothetical extension of reality. Um, And he also talks about cosmic horror as fitting this category. Um, So it can't be a complete breaking of the rules of reality. It has to extend from it, but but be adjacent, right? So that's kind of, I think, one way to think about Lovecraft's philosophy and works is you have a... Uh, our world and then right bumped up against it like a like a Stephen King thinny is a 
is some kind of barrier to something else, but it's right at the edge. So there's this edge between the mundane and the supernatural. And, and Lovecraft, of course, does that really well in a lot of his, his stories. And he's just kind of repeating that here. All right, next up, Elizabeth Tolbridge. Still writing her. Uh, we got three letters, April 20th, May 4th, and May 11th. So the April 20th one uh, is basically, we see Lovecraft complaining on the difficulty of publishing books, something he talked about a little bit earlier uh, to another writer. I think it was Durlath. He says, oh, you know, I can't get my books published. I, ca I can't publish a book. And he just thinks it's difficult to publish books. And at the same time, as we saw in the previous episode, he's feeling more alienated from weird fiction itself. Um, and he also talks about the lack of interest, his lack of interest in selling books. Um, so that's that's just more extending his kind of ennui about the about his profession. Um, May fourth, nineteen thirty-two is the next one. Um, um, talks about poetry here, um, and one is. Uh, he talks about sonnets about aging, which is maybe kind of relevant given the, the upcoming the near death of his mother. Or not his mother, his aunt, sorry. His aunt. Um, what does he write? Oh, I'll just read the whole letter because it's pretty. the section we have is pretty short. Um, quote, as... For your fear of a too large number of sonnets reflecting the marching of the years, I think it's wholly groundless. This theme is possibly the most significant one in all of life and literature, and it's hardly any such thing as overdoing it. One needed to worry too much about subject matter so long as such matter lies within the domain of the genuine and is treated with intensity and sincerity. And I don't regret simplicity. Simplicity is the highest attribute of classical art. All one needs to avoid is triteness, commonplaceness, and false or artificial sentiment. So... That's a couple ideas there. One on the importance of, of art about aging and death and the value of simplicity in art. So their, their letters are always really interesting because they, they often do talk about poetry and something Lovecraft. You know, he's not as unpublished a huge amount of poetry. It's really his first love. And you can tell he cared a lot about the field. Um, the, ne the final letter in this section we have to Elizabeth Tolbridge on May 11th uh, talks about his southern trip. Uh, he talks about hoping to go to New Orleans. This one's actually a few weeks before the Durleth letter where he talks about being in New Orleans. So he's, he hasn't yet got there, but he's saying he hoped, hopes to get there because of he's kind of got spring chills and he wants to avoid them. All right. So that's pretty much where we're pretty much at the end here. Um, except for talking about uh, the Robert E. Howard letters. Um, we have three of them here. So, yeah, the first of these is May 7th. Now, as, I, as always, and I'm repeating myself all the time here, I will say more about all these letters in a lot more detail um, when I get to the collection of his writings this is all like laying the groundwork in a way for for those letters but i do want to say what's in them if you if you want to reference the fourth volume of the selected letters um he talks here about uh 
dreams, uh, especially dreams of sun, uh, sunset. Um, and he talks about how the like a thing like imagination starters uh, connected to dreams. And we know Lovecraft, you know, dream stories that he would later publish and write. Um, he talks here quite a lot about the the environment of publication and the bad state of of weird fiction in particular. Uh, the retrenchment of the magazine field is something that's really concerning to him. And he kind of comes back to this theme he talked about with others about his desire to maybe write a book. And he, and he actually says he wish he had the energy to write the Necronomicon, but you know, which would be like a, this fake book, which he sketched out. Um, he's written passages from, but he was actually saying he should write the whole thing, which too bad he did. Would have been kind of awesome. Um, the next letter to Howard is dated June 8th, 1932. And this one uh, is during his New Orleans trip. He talks to him about cosmic horror. He talks to him about New Orleans climate. And he also writes about um, occult occurrences. And he's, he draws his skepticism towards those occult occurrences. So he's, he gives some of his skeptical arguments. You just can't believe these things really happen, he says. Um, and then on July 25th, he writes him another time. Um, and this one, he talks about the death of his aunt and the lack of gods and the fact that gods only exist in fiction. Um, and that's something I'm definitely going to look out for when I read the Howard letters because we get Howard's point of view. And I, I, I'm curious a little bit about Howard's own views on religion and the divine. So that's it. Um, I think, I guess, two big things. Uh, biographically in this section one of course being the new orleans trip and the, and the other being the, the death of his aunt um but carrying a lot of his, his themes i think the most interesting letters here are the ones to vernon shea actually the ones dealing with war and pacifism and citizenship and things like that but that's it that's that's all um all i have for you really so in the next episode let's see what we got here Yeah, a lot of good stuff from the looks of it. Stuff about the Great Depression. He writes to 11 different people over the course of 20 letters we have in this this anthology of, of correspondences. So, um, so yeah, we'll be covering a lot of people um, in the next episode, but that'll be fine. That maybe means we have more to talk about, more ideas spread out across uh, a large group of people. Uh, so anyways, I'll, I'll get to it uh, as soon as I can. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. I will uh, see you next time. If you have any thoughts about any of these issues or any critiques or revisions you think I should make about my um, anything I've said, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, in the next episode, we'll we'll carry on looking at letters from August to November of 1932. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. Now we're strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day, turning away as much as to say. You've never known me
sharing all your kisses. 